You don't have to do anything besides answer your question about losing your stupid wallet. It's Friday, October 20th, 2017, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, contributing editor at Dutch News and birthday girl, and with me today is Paul Paters, civil engineering master student and fellow stateless person. Our other podcaster, Gordon Derrick, contributing editor at Dutch News and amateur childminder, is not with us today as he is looking after his children, but before retreating into his bunker, he recorded an interview with another British expat, Ben Coates, which we'll hear later in the show. So, Paul, you decided to emulate Gordon this week and lose your ID as well. Yeah, you gave the impression now that this was somehow intentional. <laughs> it wasn't. I'm, uh, I'm just saying I am the only person on this podcast that's managed not to lose a crucial part of their identification <laughs> the last week and a half. Um, that, however, is true. Uh, yeah, I lost my wallet. I'm not sure if it got stolen or if I, if I just lost it. But uh, indeed, uh, in my wallet was my identification card and my driver's license. So, yeah, I, I have no way of uh, identifying myself now. So how has the replacement process been going? Um, well, actually, uh, it w- quite well. I did have my bank card uh, in my pocket, so I didn't lose that. That's good. So I could still buy uh, buy me some food and dinner, and so I didn't have to uh, beg for money uh, on the streets. Yes. I uh, changed my uh, uh, OV chip card already and they send it to me within two days even though it said that you can expect it within one and two uh, weeks so that was uh, faster than expected <clears throat> now i made an appointment at the gemeente to uh, replace my uh, id and my driver's license so at least while you were dealing with that you got to uh, enjoy some excellent weather because we had a return of summer this week with temperatures soaring to 25 degrees in some parts of the country it was the warmest october 16th on record yeah, yeah, it was nice. I yeah. was uh, indoors all day, so I didn't <laughs> have a chance to enjoy the weather whatsoever. But I heard it was very nice. Yes. And uh, Molly, uh, it was your birthday on Tuesday? It was my birthday on Tuesday. Did you spend it in a traditional Dutch fashion? I got a lot of the three kisses at the office. It yeah. was non-ideal. No? Uh, no, it's Why not, not my favorite thing. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was a, it was quite nice. I had a quite nice day, and then I'm having a, a, a party on Saturday. So. Oh, how nice. Yes. All listeners are invited. Yes, all listeners are invited. We'll be sure to post the details in the liner notes. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we'll update you on the latest political news, update you on what has happened in the Anna Faber murder, and tell you about some immigrants even Hurt Wilders isn't complaining about. Our top story this week is, of course, the cabinet formation. Last week, the four parties, VVD, ChristenUnie, CDA and D66, came to an agreement after months of negotiations. VVD leader Mark Rutte was officially appointed formateur by parliament, which means he was given the task to start form a cabinet. It was already announced that VVD will get six ministers, CDA and D66 both four, and ChristenUnion will get two ministers. During the week, names of the new ministers have continuously been leaking. So what uh, what names have been spraying out into the media landscape? <laughs> yeah, the first, uh, the first name that was uh, leaked was uh, that of Erik Wiebes. He's now the junior finance minister for the VVD, but he will become the minister for economic affairs and the new climate minister. Uh, Wiebes is one of the most uh, boring cabinet members, uh, to be honest. He's an, you never see him on a talk show or, or something, but uh, within his party, he's considered to be quite apolitical, uh, which might be the reason he's going to, uh, to the climate department, so he can negotiate better with different parties. 
Uh, the other name was Halbe Zelstra. He's now the leader of the VVD in Parliament, and uh, he was also the sidekick of Mark Rutte during the negotiations, and he will be the new Foreign Affairs Minister. This is a bit uh, surprising, because his foreign affairs experience is limited to... Uh reading the international section of the New York <laughs> Times, I think, right, as it was quoted. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, uh, he is uh, he is not a diplomat at all, and he didn't serve, for example, in the um, Foreign Affairs Committee in, in Parliament. So, yeah, he has no foreign, foreign experience whatsoever. So, indeed, it is a bit of a surprise. He's been camping in France once or twice, though. So maybe <laughs> that yeah, that's, that is his foreign, uh, foreign experience, indeed. It was always rumored that he uh, was interested in social affairs and in finance. Janine Hennis was always supposed to be the new minister for foreign affairs. But of course, she resigned a few weeks ago, so uh, she's uh, too politically damaged to be a minister now. So uh, yeah, they had to find a replacement, and apparently they found one in Halbeselstra. But they're um, also going to get a, a, a second minister in, in foreign affairs, someone who does have a significant amount of uh, foreign affairs experience. Yeah, that's true. It was leaked on uh, Thursday that there will be a second minister for foreign affairs. This will be Sigrid Kaag. She's a highly respected diplomat who worked for the UN since 1994, and uh, she has been working in the middle. East for that organization. So she has a lot of um, uh, foreign experience. So yeah, that's probably the reason why they decided to uh, split up the ministry. Yeah, so then at least at least someone over there has, has some experience yeah, with the job. Indeed. There's going to be a lot of vice prime ministers. Yeah, it's an odd title. Huh? Yeah, right? vice prime minister yeah. is a bit of an odd title. Yeah, it's just um, the replacement for uh, the prime minister when he's, for example, away in Brussels or on a state visit or something like that. Right. Um, but we have four parties now in the coalition, so that means that every party has a uh, vice prime minister to bring in. And one of them is Hugo de Jong for the CDA. He's a uh, well, very young, and he's now a wethouder in Rotterdam. He will become a minister for elderly care, and also um, now the vice uh, prime minister for CDA. The um, the other vice prime minister for D- D66 will be Kasia Ollongen. She's now the deputy mayor in Amsterdam, right? Yeah, that's true. And uh, But before that, she was the secretary general at the uh, uh, Ministry of General Affairs, which is the prime minister's uh, ministry. So she was the highest uh, civil servant of that ministry. When she was that, she was the confidant of, uh, of Mark Rutte. So they know each other very well, even though she's from a uh, different party. Um, so she will be the second um, vice prime minister. And the other one is Carola Schouten. She's now an MP for the ChristenUnie and was Gert-Jan Seger's companion in the negotiations. She is generally regarded as one of the best MPs um, and uh, she has been named uh, Political Talent of the Year for, I think, two times. Wow, and congratulations to her. Yeah, and uh, yeah, she is. Uh, her expertise is in finance, so it's a bit of a surprise that she will become the Agricultural Minister. I guess the finance of... of pigs and stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, so who will be the finance minister? Uh, that will be Wopke Hoekstra. And I think you're glad that you don't have to pronounce this name. <laughs> I am so glad I don't have to do the names. <laughs> yeah, Wopke Hoekstra, he's from the CDA and he will be the finance minister. He's now an MP in the Eerste Kamer and uh, he will be one of the younger members of the cabinet. Uh, how old is he? Uh, he is now 41, okay. and he was 35 when he became an MP in the Eerste Kamer. And, well, if you've seen the Eerste Kamer, these right. are usually... It, it, it appears to be an, an elderly home, actually. Elderly home, <laughs> a yeah, well-dressed indeed. elderly so home. A, a, so a 35-year-old uh, man was... Uh, yeah, Quite young. Quite young. Another minister will be Bruno Bruins, uh, and he will be the health minister for the uh, VVD. Okay, and uh, justice and safety, they're going to get two ministers as well, right? Yeah, there used to be one minister too, and the new minister will be Sander Dekker, he's now the Deputy Minister of Education, uh, he will be the Minister for Safety, and uh, Ferdinand Trappenhuis 
of the CDA will be the justice minister. <laughs> Why and are Dutch people naming their children, Paul? <laughs> yeah, th- this is a weird name, even for Dutch standards. <laughs> yeah, Ferdinand is a more Spanish name, I think, than, uh, uh, than Dutch, traditionally. Yeah, yeah. Frappenhaus is terrible. Yeah, e- even though it does sound uh, Dutch, though. Yeah. yeah, but it's a weird Dutch name. I, 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 I agree. Okay. Yeah. Well, and it is apparently agreed that this ministry, um, yeah, it has suffered in the past many political scandals and not to say mismanagement. So they decided to, you know, split it up, but without splitting it up. Right. Okay. And the uh, defense minister is going to be a a woman again. Yeah. This is uh, Anke Beideveld Schouten. She's from the CDA. Uh, She has served before as a deputy minister and is now the king's commissioner in Overijssel. What's the, uh, what is the king's commissioner, uh, Paul, for our listeners? Um, Yeah, that's like the the governor of the province. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And anybody else? Yeah. um, This time uh, an old name in The Hague. Uh, He's coming back. That's Ari Slop. He's the leader of the Christian Union. He was the leader in the Christian Union uh, for many years in the Tweede Kamer. But he uh, uh, quit politics in 2016, and now he's coming back as a minister. And he's coming back as the minister of... Oh, uh, the uh, minister of education. Okay. That is uh, quite the roundup with a lot of names there. Yeah, and uh, we didn't even include the uh, deputy ministers. No, we didn't even get into that, and there's there's plenty of them. There are plenty of them, yeah. We'll include links to all of the articles about the ministers and stuff like that in the liner notes, because I imagine our listeners, much like me, mostly tuned out a lot of those names. It's, uh, (laughs) it's, It's pretty easy to do that. Another update on a story from last week. The investigation continues into the murder of Anna Faber, the 25-year-old who set out on a bike ride and vanished. Her body was found in a nature reserve last week. Her body was located after a patient in a nearby psychiatric clinic, identified as Michael P., directed the police to its location. Subsequent investigation found that P., who was convicted in the rape of two underage girls in 2012, was never given a TBS, a judicial treatment assessment, was also having a relationship with one of the staff members at the clinic. The Altrecht Aventurain Clinic in Dendolder stepped up security at its campus after another girl was chased by a man on the campus grounds this week. The clinic will now have 24-hour security. Meanwhile, current Justice Minister Steph Bloch has ordered an inquiry into the circumstances of the clinic. Researchers at Maastricht University, Liverpool University and King's College have proven what internationals in the Netherlands have known all along. A few drinks helps your Dutch. The researchers tested a low dose of alcohol on the participants' ability to speak Dutch. 50 German students uh, who were learning Dutch were given a half liter of beer, which is... Uh, a small amount in German terms, before speaking Dutch and having their language skills evaluated by native speakers. Researchers found that participants performed significantly better, particularly with pronunciation, compared to those who did not have a drink before speaking Dutch. And this is why... Before having to pronounce any Dutch name on this podcast, I drink a half a liter <laughs> of beer. Luckily, you didn't drink any uh, any alcohol before pronouncing the names of uh, the, the new ministers. No, I did not have to do that, so that was yeah. on you. Otherwise, you would have been very drunk, I think. Extremely drunk. <laughs> yeah, and it was also found that uh, the consumption of alcohol had no effects on the participants' own perception of their ability to speak uh, Dutch. So Even though they did speak better. Yeah, so they yeah. spoke significantly better, but they didn't think that they spoke significantly better, which yeah. I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, which is usually alcohol has the opposite effect, yeah. Also, they uh, the researchers noted that this is only effective for low doses of alcohol. <laughs> High doses of alcohol uh, uh, has detrimental effects on your language abilities, both in Dutch and, and all other languages. <laughs> which is no surprise. 
The director of the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam has resigned, effective immediately after it came to light that Beatrix Ruff owned a highly profitable art consultancy business on top of her duties as director. Ruff's consultancy, Current Matters, advised private individuals and companies about lending art to the museum itself and cleared a net profit of 430,000 euros in 2015, according to the NRC. The Stedelijk released a statement on its website this week that, quote, speculations in the media over the past weeks that may have had an impact on the Stedelijk's reputation were the reason for Ruff's departure. Her consultancy um, company consulted the museum as well, right? right? Yes. Yeah. Not only is there a question about how she could have had time to be the director of the museum and run an art consultancy, but also that there was a, a number of conflicts of interest. This wasn't her first controversy, right? No, it wasn't. This is the second time that the NRC has turned up questionable information about Ruff. Two weeks ago, the paper published a story questioning the value and the conditions of a donation that the museum received from artist Thomas Borgman in 2016. According to the paper, as part of the donation, the museum purchased several other works from a collector which appeared to be overvalued. I guess she had a rough week. She did have a very rough week. Uh, speaking of people who aren't having a rough week, there were two big wins for the Netherlands on the continent of Australia this week. Students from Eindhoven University won for the second time the 3000 kilometer race for solar driven family cars across Australia with their car called Stalsvi. Uh, this comes on top of the other Dutch win in the two annual competition. Last week, students from Delft Technical University won in the Challenger class event with their Nuna 9. It was the ninth time that uh, the team from Delft won the solar challenge. Well, congratulations to them. Congratulations to them. I find it fascinating that a country that has so little sunlight can produce such excellent solar cars. Yeah, I guess I guess it forces us to be uh, very efficient with their solar-powered cars. So if you uh, have a car that works in the Netherlands and you put it in Australia... It goes crazy. It goes crazy, yeah. Two Syrian refugees who even Gert Wilders won't complain about are set to arrive in the Netherlands on Monday. They are Tigers Sultan and Savid, who had been rescued from an abandoned Syrian zoo. Animal carer Yuno Van Zon was part of the team from Magic Paws that organized the rescue at the Magic World Zoo. He said the animals were in terrible shape after years of neglect. Their pelt has lost its shine and they are having neurological problems, probably because of the bad treatment and malnourishment, he said. The Felita Big Cat Center in Nyabercope, where the tigers will go, specializes in dealing with traumatized animals. Um, so how did they get the animals out of the zoo? I mean, Syria is a war zone. It actually took two trips and intense negotiations with various groups. The animals were were first taken to Jordan before being moved to their more permanent homes. National Geographic did an entire story on the rescue. It's it's really fascinating. We'll link to it in the liner notes. But they rescued something like 22 big animals. There were several tigers, lions, bears, hyenas, two huskies that apparently had been abandoned at the zoo also, and they refused to leave them behind, even though this group specializes in moving sort of, of zoo animals, big wild animals. It was really particularly interesting because they interviewed the guy that's the director of this organization, which I'm not sure if I should be be really ashamed of humanity or really impressed by humanity that there is a group of people who you know a whole nonprofit organization that specializes in rescuing large zoo mammals from war zones and other disaster areas yeah wh why would you be ashamed of that well because the fact that humanity is putting these animals and then having wars around them uh, seems seems slightly shameful. Yeah. It's a really impressive story and there was of course like, you know, bribes that had to be paid and negotiations that had to be and they were kidnapped at one point and all these sorts yeah. of things. So official negotiations and uh, unofficial negotiations. negotiations. Yeah. yeah. So it's quite intense. It's 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 definitely worth the read. We'll have an interview with Ben Coates after this word from our sponsors. 
Access is an independent, not-for-profit organization which has been helping internationals successfully settle in the Netherlands for the past 30 years. Access is run entirely by a team of highly skilled, motivated and professional volunteers who have themselves been experts. Their vision is to provide essential, comprehensive and unique services nationally through the expertise and experience of their volunteer expatriate community. You can find out more about Access and the services they offer at the website www.access-nl.org. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. This week, in a change to our usual format, we're bringing a new voice to the podcast. Ben Coates famously got stranded in a snowstorm at Schiphol Airport seven years ago and still hasn't left. Gordon interviewed him about his life in the Netherlands, the book he wrote about it, and found out just how Dutch he's become. This week, instead of our regular discussion, uh, we have an interview with uh, Ben Coates, who arrived in Netherlands uh, was in 2010, was it, Ben? Yeah, the very end of 2010. In 2010, yes, and has uh, went on to uh, liked it so much, he wrote a book about it called uh, Why the Dutch Are Different. So, welcome, Ben. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So, you're our first interview subject, and thought we'd like to ask you a bit, obviously, about your experiences, your life in the Netherlands, also a bit about, because you, you worked in the political sphere in the past, so uh, obviously we've just had the coalition agreement, so maybe uh, ask you a bit about that. And, um, yeah, and we also wanted to start off, though, with um, a quickfire 10 questions round, just to uh, gauge exactly how Dutch you've become since you got here. That sounds intimidating. Is this, <laughs> okay. is this part of Mark Rutter's new immigration <laughs> it testing? It may well be. I think, it's probably, if anything, it's probably... A, 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 Simon Boomer we're very keen on this kind of thing okay well, yeah. I hope I don't get <laughs> deported if I get some answers wrong there's no right or wrong answers but we will give you a score at the end no. uh, so first question have you had a bicycle stolen I don't think I have actually no and I would like to think that's because I have this slightly odd system where I have two locks on my bike and whenever I go anywhere I lock my bike up with two locks which my friends laugh at me for but I always think if anyone's going to steal a bike from the station, they're not going to take the only one that has two locks on it. Well, that's what the advice we're going to use, yeah. Uh, can you ride a bike while holding an umbrella? I can, actually. And I think <laughs> I can probably go one better than that. I can ride a bike while holding an umbrella and also having a dog on a lead that's running along to attached to the handlebars. That, that's super Dutch. It's almost worth a bonus point, that. Have you bought anything in the supermarket that you didn't need just because it was free? No, I don't okay. think so. I think um, this is this is one way in which I'm terribly undutch. I'm one of those people who just goes around the supermarket, doesn't look at any of the prices at all. <laughs> you just, just buy what you need. Buy what I like, what I need, and the extra couple of cents here or there, I, I don't worry about too much. Which okay. is probably not very Dutch of me, unfortunately. Oh well. And uh, do you uh, enjoy stop waffles? I do. Yeah, yeah, I had one for breakfast this morning. Actually, nice, oh really? Healthy start to the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You didn't have the hakkerslag uh, on your bread. No, I'm not such a fan of that, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what about pickled herring? Um, I eat it occasionally. I would hesitate to say that I like it. That might be. I, I can tolerate it. <laughs> okay, you do tolerate it. <laughs> that's almost a more Dutch approach, isn't it? Uh, and what about drop? That I do not like. That's I'm a afraid. deal breaker. No, okay. kind of anything licorice <laughs> is really not not for me. Okay. Uh, do you own a cheese slice? I do. I think I have more than one, actually. Oh, well, that, that's in the very good. Do you have a spare one from ones in the dishwasher? Yeah, exactly. They're always exactly. in the dishwasher, cheese slices. You always need a cheese slice. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a potato masher? I do, yes. Okay, and a bottle scraper? No. I'm, not a bottle I'm scraper. I'm reasonably Dutch, but not that Dutch. I'm <laughs> okay. happy to leave the scraps in the bottom of the bottle. <laughs> uh, have you ever ordered pancakes in a restaurant? I have, actually, <laughs> yes. Um, although I have to say, again, I, I'm, the one thing I'm not so keen on is this whole Dutch thing of um, you have cheese and strope together, the mixing of... Sweet and savoury on pancakes. Yeah. Yeah. I draw the line there, but 
pancakes with something sweet or savoury on. Yeah, the pancakes with bacon bits in it. That's quite a Dutch thing. As yeah, well, I've, I've grown to yeah. to accept that. I can uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> can live with that. Good. Um, have you ever completed one of those Albert Hein sticker actions where you have to collect about a hundred stickers to get uh, some cut price? Uh, I have actually, and I I don't even remember what I got, but it was something truly terrible where <laughs> I went to the supermarket religiously every day for weeks and saved all these stickers, and then at the end of it paid 10 euros for a mug that I didn't want you anyway, didn't want it was probably, yeah, you probably could have paid full price was about 12 euros anyway exactly yeah, so I'm not yeah. falling for that one again. <laughs> yeah. have you ever sung along to an Andre Hazes song in a bar um, I'm not sure I know any of the words <laughs> I've, I've probably sort of drunkenly swayed and <laughs> shouted if that counts okay we'll maybe give you half points for that have you watched a whole episode of Ick for Trek no I haven't uh, have you no, watched any of Ick for Trek at all I think I've um, at friends houses seen bits and pieces but Maybe that's something it's I need to work on. Dutch television for Twix, yeah, maybe yeah. after this I can go straight <laughs> home and that will be the rest of my day. Yeah, and the last one, uh, is there a birthday calendar in your bathroom? Uh, there isn't at the moment. I'm in oh. the middle of moving house and the new house does not yet have a birthday calendar, Ooh. which is a terrible oversight. Did you have a birthday calendar in your old one? We did, yes. Oh, okay. um, so, okay. And I'm sure there will be one firmly instated in the new one. So. Well, we'll give, you, we'll give you half points for that. Do Sorry, I, well, don't well, forget <laughs> to congratulate everyone's relatives on having a relative whose birthday it is. And Indeed. Yeah, you've, um, I hope you've never ever forgotten a Dutch person's birthday. Cause, uh, I probably have. I'm not yeah. great with birthdays. Yeah. No, me neither. But uh, yeah, no, actually, I don't have a birthday calendar either. I should confess as well. But I really should get one. Shame yeah. on you. Yeah, I think we put together the running total. I think uh, you, you got about forty-seven percent there. So okay, bit, bit I, of work to do. Yeah, there. that but sounds yeah, like um, maybe maybe not the drop. Yeah, but, uh, my embarking's not going as well as I thought. Yeah, you get home watching for, for track. Okay, yeah. I'll do that. <laughs> get some bonus points. Okay, so. You've been here, so say, about 2010, and just maybe for people who don't know, tell as briefly as you can the story of how you ended up in the Netherlands in the first place, because it's quite a remarkable story. Sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm British, as listeners can probably hear, and I, I grew up in the UK and worked in London for quite a few years um, in Westminster in politics. And then in 2010, I left and sort of took a, a gap year to go travelling, basically, in South America. Um, and while I was there, I met a nice young Dutch lady, um, and I behaved very properly in British gentlemanly fashion and um, nothing untoward happened, but I, I got her email address somehow mm. at the end of it all. And then about six months later, I was flying back to London from South America um, and the plane was diverted. The KLM flight was diverted due to bad weather and had to land at Schiphol in really heavy snow towards the end of 2010. And the whole of Amsterdam was snowed in and all the hotels were full and mm. everything was closed. The trams weren't going. Um, and then I realized, well, actually, I do know one person in the Netherlands. So I emailed this Dutch lady who I'd met six months before and mm. said, well, I'm stuck in Amsterdam for a couple of days. Would you like to have dinner or something? Mm. Um, and the dinner went rather well, should we mm-hmm. say, and I never left. And um, So you never got se- that flight uh, onto London? No, six no. or seven years later, I'm still here and we're, we're still together. We're married now. And yeah. um, the Netherlands is home now. So, so kind of an accidental expat, accidental immigrant almost. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was no big big life plan to end up in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. But like a lot of people, I just somehow washed up here and, and here you are. ended up loving it. Yeah. And you, you travel a lot for your work, I know. And um, does it feel like home now when you fly into Schiphol? Yeah, I think it yeah. does, actually. And it's, it's, that's probably an, an interesting question, how the, the balance is tipped, where I think, mm. like a lot of people, when I first moved here, you have sort of split loyalties between mm. where you're living at the moment and your, your home country, Britain in my case. Um, and then gradually, over a couple of years, the balance starts to tip. And now I'm at the point where if I go to Britain, which I do quite often for work and things, I, I find it very enjoyable, but it really feels like a holiday visit. It's the same as going to France or Spain yeah. or something. It's a nice place to go and yeah. have a look around for a while, but it's not where I live. And yeah. the Netherlands is really, that's where I come home to. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so the UK is very much over there now, rather than uh, over here, and, and, and uh, Rotterdam is over here. Yes, exactly. You, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, do your friends in Britain rile you for uh, going Dutch now? Do they tell you you've, you've, you've gone native? I think some of them have noticed that I'm probably a little bit more outspoken and honest <laughs> than I used to be. If I can put that diplomatically, yeah. um, I think before I was probably a kind of quintessential British, um, very careful in the words I used and not causing offence and splitting the difference between opinions. So now I'm probably a little bit more Dutch and direct. And, you know, if, my, if I don't like my friend's T-shirt, I'm just going to tell them I don't like their T-shirt. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. You'd have to ask them. Yeah, we don't go in for sort of British euphemisms and uh, sort of circumlocutions and, uh, yeah. No. None of that sort of, uh, yeah, uh, politely... Uh, none of that sort of, uh, you know, sort of saying things are interesting when they're not. No, no time wasting. Just straight <laughs> to the point. Straight to the point. Very good. Yeah. And uh, how do you think your relationship with the country has kind of evolved over the time you've been here? I mean, I suppose a lot of expats go through uh, when you first arrive, you're sort of quite admiring of uh, what the Dutch have achieved, and then as you get to know it better, you sort of have a slightly more nuanced relationship. How has it been for you? Yeah, that's, I think your description of it is quite accurate. Actually, um, I think there's probably a bit of a sort of U-shaped curve if that's mm-hmm. not too pretentious a way to describe it so you start off loving everything and thinking how fantastic and exciting it all is and everything's beautiful and glorious yeah and all, all these lo- lovely sort of laid out streets and cycle exactly lanes exactly and, uh, yeah. and then real life intrudes a mm-hmm. bit and after six months of paying the bills and putting up with the dutch weather over the winter <laughs> and um well, i come being, from scotland so even dutch oh, weather yeah, is well, an improvement to where my i used to be um, <laughs> and being forced to eat pancakes with cheese and syrup on and all the rest of it you you start to sort of get the more balanced picture I suppose where you, you see the bad stuff as well as the good stuff yeah and then now I think after that you come the period where you, you sort of settle somewhere in the middle and now I think um, for me it's it's home and it's yeah. somewhere that I, I like very much and there's many many things that I really love about the Netherlands but mm-hmm. there's also as there is with anywhere things that I don't like yeah and you yeah. grumble about those but tolerate them as well and yeah it, just, it becomes almost from mature love and you know when the first cut was starry-eyed some impression that you maybe have of a country. Uh, yeah, that's a good yeah, analogy. Yeah, it's yeah. like a, a romance. You sort of yeah. go from the head over heels phase <laughs> yeah. to, into something a bit more realistic and yeah. re- reality based, maybe. Yeah. What, what what surprised you as as you found your feet here about about the Netherlands? Um, probably a lot of things. Yeah. I, I think one of the the main ones, which is one of the key themes of the book, I wrote actually, is um, how the Netherlands is not really as liberal as everyone mm-hmm. seems to think it is. Um, and the Netherlands is, to be clear, I mean very liberal, tolerant, peaceful place compared to many other places in the world. Um, But a lot of those sort of cliches about the Dutch being completely free-thinking and happy and tolerant are, like any cliche about any people in the world, Mm. um, have a dose of reality but also a a Mm. lot of untruth in them. And for me, I think that was one of the the biggest surprises and the more interesting thing was finding out more about the the politics and the way that, you know, you have a lot of left-leaning, green-thinking people with their, their cargo bikes and their tofu for dinner. And then you also have you also have a lot of people who strongly support Geo Wilders, not mm-hmm. a tiny slice of the population, but a significant number of people. And I think more generally, the Netherlands, it gets painted abroad as this incredibly tolerant, left-wing, liberal place. Um, but in many ways, it's actually quite a conservative country mm. in other ways. And people work quite hard and are very careful with their money and they're fairly mm. disdainful of anything that seems flashy or excessive or big fast cars or fancy houses and they have quite strong family values often and go and visit grandma every Tuesday and their mother every Thursday for dinner and 
in, in those kind of ways, it's a, a fairly conservative place, probably yeah. more conservative than some people from outside think. Yeah, and also in, in parts extremely conservative. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people are astonished to find out about the Bible Belt when they come move here. Was that something you knew about at all? No, not <laughs> at all, not at all. And again, that's um, sort of a bit of a split in the country, I think, that you have certain places like Amsterdam, notably, is obviously famously liberal, tolerant, anarchic place. Yeah. Um, but then... <laughs> To a certain extent, the further south you go and the further east, you get a little bit more traditional values, um, more of the Catholic values in the south in the sort of carnival yeah. areas. Um, yeah. And there's quite a stark regional divide there, I think. Yeah. So at what point did you take it upon yourself to think uh, you should uh, write a book about the country? What was your motivation there? Well, I think it was partly some of the things we we're just talking about, this sense that um, people from abroad often think of the Netherlands just in terms of a few simple cliches or a few basic facts, mm. but... Like, like I did when I first moved here, don't know very much about the history or the politics or the culture of the country. And mm. I think there's a lot of people in Britain, for example, who can tell you all about Emmanuel Macron's love life and Donald Trump's policies and what Angela Merkel thinks about refugees, but wouldn't recognise Mark Rutter if he came and sat next to them in the pub and don't know mm. anything about the Netherlands other than a few things they saw when they went to Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit of an effort to, to fix that, I guess. Yeah, and I, I was interested in, when I was reading it, that uh, it's uh, you know, it's kind of very much billed as a kind of travel guide, but actually you pack in a lot of real uh, historical fact and um, you know, a lot of background into the into the book. Was that was that sort of your intention from the start, to, to, to be as, uh, go as deep into the culture and the history as that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's quite deliberately a blend. Um, I think the Netherlands suffers slightly from this tendency when foreigners write about it they write about it almost in a slightly patronizing way and they focus on these sort of funny quirky aspects and the, you know the cloggies love their cheese and their bikes and don't really treat the history or the politics very seriously and then on the other hand the, a lot of the books that you do see in the bookshops tend to be very heavy and dry and you can buy books about the history of the Netherlands in the 17th century that are incredibly interesting and detailed but mm. not something you're going to want to read on holiday or in bed before you sleep at night yeah. and so this book was deliberately a, a sort of effort to split the difference I guess and mm. produce something that if you want to know more about William of Orange and Geer Wilders and the history of the Dutch battle against the water you can learn that but in a way that's reasonably light and readable and funny and is yeah. mixed in with the kind of humorous adventures of a foreigner <laughs> exploring the Netherlands. Yeah, sure, sure. And you don't shy away either from some of the, you know, the more difficult and awkward um, subjects like, you know, um, slavery during the Golden Age and uh, collaboration during the Second World War. I mean, how comfortable were you taking on those kinds of subjects, um, given that you hadn't been here actually very long? Yes, it's, um, it's a tricky thing to do. And I, I think in some ways, um, it's a bit of a, a, a brave or <laughs> reckless thing to do to sort of... Um, try and criticise a country and I'm always quite conscious that the Netherlands has been very good to me and I'm very happy to live here and to work here so I don't want to be unpleasant about it or ungrateful but I also think like I say it's it's not just um, a sort of cartoon cliche of liberal Europe it's a living breathing complicated country with aspects of it that are unpleasant as well as pleasant and as you said things in history that are unpleasant and mm. if you look at the the role of the Dutch in the Second World War, for example, it's not just all about brave resistors protecting Anne Frank from the Nazis. And if you look at the politics, it's not just all about left-wing governments doing exciting things about climate change. It's also about mm. unpleasant attitudes towards refugees and asylum seekers. And mm. so to try and tease out some of those differences and get behind the cliches a little bit was part of the idea. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, do you have a lot of Dutch readers? What kind of response do you get from Dutch people who've read your book? Mostly quite positive. To be honest with you, I was slightly nervous when it came out that I would get a 
big influx of hate mail from people who strongly disagreed. Um, I have had certainly some criticism from mm-hmm. Dutch people about the book. But I think actually the interesting thing I find is that it's quite balanced. So I've had emails from people criticising it, saying you're a disgusting right-wing racist Mm -hmm. for saying that there's problems with immigration in the Netherlands. And then I've had emails from people saying "Um, you're you're such a left-wing hippie, why don't you understand that Geo Wilders is right about everything? And so I think if you're kind of offending both poles and you're somewhere in the middle, then you're probably doing something right. But overall, I would say... 95% 95% at least of the, the messages I've had have been positive. Do you have any ideas what some proportion of your readers are, are Dutch? You get yeah, it's roughly 50% are sold in the Netherlands and 50% are sold outside the Netherlands. Yeah. Although, as you say, I think probably a fair slice of the ones sold in the Netherlands is people who are visiting on holiday mm. or I think it's probably two-thirds native English speakers read it and one-third Dutch people read it would be yeah. my guess. Yeah. Um, but quite often people who have some linked to the Netherlands so they're they're going out with or married to a Dutch person or they work for Mm. a Dutch company or they've been here on holiday a few times and want to know more about it people who have as I say some desire to dig behind the cliches and learn a little bit more about the country than just what they see on a visit to the Rijksmuseum. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I wanted to ask you a bit about the political culture here as well, because you describe yourself as a recovering Tory. You, know, <laughs> you, you were involved, I think, in the um, uh, in, in the team that um, uh, ran about the 2010 election in the UK when David Cameron was elected. Yes, that's um, correct. Yeah, so but how do you compare, say, sort of the bloodbath politics in the UK to what you see in the, in, in the Dutch political system? Well, it's very, very different, and I think bloodbath is a good way for it, a good word for it. Um, in Britain, politics is a bit like in America as well, extremely combative, and you have essentially a, a two-party system, or in lots of places at least, a two-party system, and politicians that spend their days trying to make each other look as terrible as possible, and a media that largely goes along with that and exacerbates that and encourages them to be as flamboyant and outrageous and offensive as possible to some extent. Um, and in the Netherlands, it's much calmer and more sedate and sensible and much more based on compromise and reason and you obviously have exceptions to that rule um, yeah because you have people on the flanks as well you have Rocket Builders and you have Thierry Baudet and you have uh, a number of minor parties who, who are very much more kind of shrill perhaps in their approaches is that do you think there's been a shift in that direction lately my, my sense is it has been getting more shrill and mm. I think if you look sort of 30 or 40 years ago you didn't have so many of those fringe figures and even just in the last couple of years if you look at Hugh this is a good example if you look at the statements he was making even sort of six or seven years ago when I arrived in the Netherlands to the things that he says these days he's definitely shifted he's become further more and further to the right and mm. and that's partly probably a reaction to things like the refugee crisis in Europe and the economic mm. changes that have happened but he's definitely hardened his rhetoric and become more offensive and more right-wing and more divisive on those issues which is not a uniquely Dutch situation obviously you have those no. fringe voices in every country um, yeah. but I think what's interesting is the way that the Dutch handle it mm. um, and in a way the the coalition negotiation the agreement that's just been announced is I think a good example of that mm. where you had this very long, fractious election campaign and negotiation process, and then you've landed on something which is basically a fairly bland compromise, <laughs> yeah, dare yeah. I say yeah, it. Everyone, that, everyone gets something, don't they, but no one gets everything they want. Yeah, yeah. and that's very much the Dutch yeah. model, is there's yeah. a lot of heat and noise, and then at the end of the day, um, the whole system is set up so that you don't really get a, a Margaret Thatcher or a Ronald Reagan mm. or someone who comes in and shakes everything up radically. You yeah. get a, a fairly centrist, technocratic government yeah. with a 
slightly forgettable prime minister who does a fairly good job of running the country which yeah. is in some ways fantastic and exactly how every country in the world should be run and in other ways i think incredibly boring and i sometimes yeah, yeah. wish that <laughs> it was just a bit more exciting yeah so is that the downside for you there's not enough drama in, in dutch politics well yeah as i say sometimes that seems like a very grown-up sensible way of doing things and other times i think come on you know the the, the prime minister is giving quite a interesting speech about immigration why doesn't someone ask him some really difficult exciting questions yeah. and provoke a debate and put it on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow instead of just sensibly reporting what he said in five lines on page five yeah yeah do you think this could have happened elsewhere that you actually had four parties uh, sitting down and uh, with with quite different visions of uh, the way they want to run the world or the way they want to run the country um and actually managed to sit down over seven months and thrash out a compromise that, that seems to me to be quite a particularly dutch thing that actually they, they could come to any kind of agreement at all i mean uh, do you think in, in other countries that would have been feasible yeah, it's quite it's quite an achievement. Um, and as I understand it, I think it's the first time they've had a four-party mm. coalition here for 40 years, I think I'm right in saying. I think that's about right, yeah. Quite a long time, anyway. Yeah. So even in the Dutch context, it's quite an achievement to pull it together. Um, it's not completely unique. I mean, in, in Germany, I think Merkel's just starting to try and pull together her own quite unwieldy coalition of left yeah. and right parties. Um, but certainly the Dutch climate makes it a lot more possible here than it would be in another country. If you look at Britain, for example, just after I stopped working in politics, the, he had a, the first coalition government in a generation with um, between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, and that was a hugely sort of complex process and had years of turmoil and over-reporting about all the splits within the cabinets and the rest of it, and the idea that you could have a four-party coalition in Britain is, I think, just a fantasy. Well, there aren't um, even four parties to put in a coalition, are there, really? Or well, yeah, that's probably part of the problem, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the media does play a role in that as well. As I mentioned before, I think in the Netherlands, my sense is that the press are fairly moderate and sensible Mo in their reporting. More, more and tame, perhaps. Yeah, yeah and you yeah. don't have this sort of intense editorialising and the overdramatic front pages and the intense criticism of yeah. everything that everyone says or does. And No, true. Well, what you really don't have as well is you don't have anything like as much uh, as much leaking from uh, government departments as, uh, I think, from political parties uh, in the Netherlands. You see, doing the coalition talks until the last couple of weeks, there's almost nothing came out. Yeah, which is yeah. remarkable that you yeah. can have months and months of parties yeah. negotiating about these deeply felt issues <laughs> and not one of them goes and talks about it to a journalist um, yeah which i mean all credit to them i suppose but yeah, yeah as i say it's just, also slightly boring if yeah, you're you <laughs> trying to like, follow it in the newspapers yeah, you get lots of shots of journalists standing in front of big wooden doors that are firmly shut yes <laughs> what, what um since, really, uh, since you touched on the uk's uh, situation what effect do you think brexit is going to have on um the relationship between britain and the um, Britain and the Netherlands. Well, I mean, I should start off by saying that I'm in the camp that thinks Brexit is a, a terrible idea and will be a, a very bad thing for Britain indeed. Um, I do think in terms of the, the bilateral relationship with the countries, it could potentially be a good thing if you have a Britain that is very much counting on friends abroad to help it make new trade deals and mm. deliver changes and get the things it needed. Then that's in some ways an opportunity for the Dutch. Um, and certainly Mark Rutte, has recently been quite a strong ally of people like David Cameron and Theresa May and Angela mm. Merkel in terms of the way, the direction he wants to steer Europe in, yeah. in a sort of more pro-business, pro-austerity kind of direction. So in that way, it, um, it could strengthen the relationship. I think I would see it more, the, the whole Brexit issue, as an opportunity for the Netherlands, actually. Mm. I think if you have all these big banks and businesses and employers potentially leaving London and looking mm. for other places to go... You get a lot of talk about places like Paris, but I think Amsterdam, 
45 minutes flight from London. Lots of English Almost speakers. everyone speaks English. Yeah. Very pleasant place to live. Mm. Things like housing and transport aren't too unaffordable. Um, I think that's Amsterdam has a really strong case to become a new hub for financial services and things like that as they yeah. leave London. Yeah, and in the coalition deal, of course, they've just cut um, corporation tax. They've abolished the tax on dividends, which, seem, which they've pretty much admitted is a, is a way of trying to encourage companies to move to the Netherlands. And the obvious place that they're looking to entice them from, you'd have thought, is the UK. Yes, I would yeah. imagine so. <laughs> um, and you also saw the in the coalition agreement this pledge to make it easier for Dutch people to who live in the UK to have mm. dual nationality. Yeah. So in the last few years, the Dutch government have made it much harder for people to have two passports effectively. Mm. Um, but in the case of the UK, they seem to be doing the opposite and making it easier and saying, if you're Dutch and you live in Britain at the moment, you can um, acquire British citizenship without losing your Dutch citizenship, which I would see as, again, a sort of step towards trying to build a constructive relationship. And of course, mm. the big question is what British then do in response yes, to that? A do they, yeah, do they make it easy for people like you and me to come and live and work in the Netherlands, yeah. or do they make it much harder? Yeah. So, do you think you're here for good? You're not um, thinking thinking of uh, um, you, you think the Netherlands is now basically your home, and uh, although you travel a lot, this is basically your base now for the foreseeable future. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think um, base is a good word for it. I, yeah. As you say, I, I sort of travel a lot, um, sometimes quite long periods of time, but the Netherlands is always the place I come back to. And I've just this week, in fact, bought uh, a new house, moved out of a right. small, thank you, small <laughs> apartment in Rotterdam to move into a big house, which is a, a wreck that will take years to <laughs> fix up and consume all my life and money for a couple of years. So You're going to end up on that programme, Help Me Money's Closer. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> new, new celebrity for me. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Do you have a Dutch passport? I don't, and I've, I've just started thinking about getting one, actually. I mean, I always thought it's... I, I wouldn't want to give up my British nationality, I think. That's quite a big step to yeah. sever the ties with the place you're born. Um, but I've started looking at whether it's possible to get both. No, no now perhaps you can, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I, that's something I would seriously consider, I think. Yeah. I certainly feel at least half Dutch these days. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ben, ben thanks very much for coming in uh, to, to talk to us. Uh, Ben's book is called uh, Why the Dutch Are Different and it's available in uh, almost railway stations and uh, airports and bookstores around the country. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to our channel and rate the podcast. This helps new listeners find us. And please share the podcast within your own network. My thanks to Gordon Derrick, Ben Coates, and Paul Paters. I'm Molly Quell, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.